hello, hello, and welcome to the Painted by Quarterly Slush Pile. We're so happy that you're listening to this today uh, with the myriad of choices for podcasts. But as far as we know, we're still the only people that are revealing our editorial process as the show itself. So um, Painted by Quarterly is comprised of a huge staff in three different cities, and there are four of us here today. Um, to discuss a piece of fiction, which we don't do that much, um, by Maria McLeod. So we're very happy to do that. And I keep using that royal we. Um, so I'll start with myself. I'm Kathleen Volk Miller, and I'm going to bounce it to Marion Wren. Hi, I'm Marion Wren. I'm over here in Abu Dhabi watching the sunset as the morning rises in sunny Philadelphia and sunny New York City. And I'm going to bounce it to Jason. Hi, I am Jason Schneiderman. I am happily in Brooklyn at my mother's writing desk, no longer at the Yellow Parsons table. Sorry, slushies. Um, and I'm going to send it to Alex. Hi, I'm Alex, and I'm out here on Long Island. Uh, and uh, since podcast is famously uh, visual medium, I'm half in the dark because I don't feel like putting on the other lighting. I've had to play with a bunch of lighting for Zoom calls, like the, the, the natural light of the window, but then like I need another lamp right on the other side to balance it out. But right now I look nice. like Dr. Claw, so. You look <laughs> that, that's, it's the advantage of a podcast. I mean, you know, no, no one can see us unless we describe it. I'm wearing a giant fruit hat. We do oftentimes take photos and put them up on social. So you're all reminding me to do that right now. And then Honestly, I'm doing, it, I'm doing it again and again. And one of these shots will be good. I thought um, you were going to say, we do oftentimes read poetry naked. <laughs> <laughs> we're in robes. We've had robes. Not on robe Zoom, notes. even on a podcast. No. <laughs> the bathrobe episode. The bathrobe episode. We've had many bathrobe episodes, but those bathrobes stayed firmly closed and died. Yeah. yeah. That, 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 that material, you, know, you guys. <laughs> I'm, I'm still in boxer shorts. Does that okay. no? I'm in, wearing my boxer shorts. I slept in the silk pants you gave me last night. Oh, I'm so happy. I love those pants. They're so, I'm so they're happy so that you still love them. I still and, love them. Yeah, well, I don't, I'll have to look and see if I have any pants. I might move forward to you the, <laughs> the 25th. Um, oh, I yes, always, we're going to I always say, gosh, guys, we don't know when we're releasing these. Don't be topical. But um, we are, Jason and, and I will be attending Samantha Nugabauer's wedding <laughs> in a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, and then we're going to have a sleepover party. That's right. Yes. And, and the wedding is our official debut as a couple. We will be attending. <laughs> Spoiler alert. For the I'm first time, we'll be attending plus so one. Afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, just, I'm just so envious. I'm just, I can't even. We're going to miss you so much. We're sorry. Oh, you'll probably be riding a camel or something. Zero fun should be had, except for maybe Samantha and Damon should have a good time. But you two, limit it. No great, no great times. We, we'll set a timer so that every okay. half hour we discuss how much we miss you. We'll have a little okay, like perfect. alert and be like, oh, perfect. right. Oh, and, then we'll take, and then we'll take a selfie. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll see progressively our eyes getting smaller. <laughs> our pupils shrinking. Love it. Love it. Well, also slushies, this is um, our, our last episode with Kate, Kate Wagner. Yes. She's been assisting with the production 
And dear Kate in Philadelphia, thank you so much for all the work you've done um, under the amazing guidance of Larissa, who's yes. also on the call. And your your wearing I'm wearing a ten gallon hat. <laughs> I, I I like the ten gallon hat. Thanks. There's no fruit, but. <laughs> but if you wanted to fill your 10 gallon hat with the fruit on my hat later it would all fit <laughs> i'll wait till it's fermented into one thank you there you go perfect <laughs> i love how well we work as a collective in um, all ways can we um, call so the fermented fruit hat okay yeah um, so slushies, um, I was, as I was saying a couple minutes ago, we mostly, if this is a new episode for you, uh, look at some other ones, listen to some other ones and look at our website. So if you go to pbqmag.org, um, all the time we publish the work ahead of time or on, re on the release date of the episode so that you can read ahead of time if you'd like, or read along if you'd like. Normally when we do a piece of fiction, they're too long for us to read aloud. And so we just publish them on the site and ask our listeners to do whichever way they choose because there will certainly be spoiler alerts. But today's piece of fiction is only 880 words. Uh, so we are going to read this one to you. I personally listen to many podcasts where people read to me and I find it extremely comforting. So hopefully you'll have the same kind of warm and cozy feelings as Marion uh, reads Maria McLeod's piece, The Eternal Fall Backwards for us. Excellent. Um, but maybe a little spoiler alert. This might not be the most warm and fuzzy thing you've ever heard. So if no, you're trying to no. just falling asleep. <laughs> the act of reading. The act of reading is cozy. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So Maria McLeod, The Eternal Fall Backwards. I hold his head in my hands, pull it to my chest. Oh, oh of his mouth. Eyes glazed. It's dark and he didn't mean to do it. Make out the words hit and run, man run over wanted to kill him, words of the mouth, pathetic, half human, why don't I die, why not dead, words slide one after another into each other, slur, collapse, run down, run out. There are tears and sorry, I'm so sorry, drinking, always too much drinking, how an evening progresses, regresses, there are his two bodies, one ferocious, to be feared, a man of fire, the other a boy's, a fetal position, a thumb to his lips. There are nights like this when I am the mother, when I cradle his head in my lap, smooth his hair and say, it's okay, you're okay now. I've gone to the jail tonight to pay them to release him because drunk, he tried to kill a man, drunk and stoned or hallucinating, he had run over a man, but missed his body and only hit his leg and the man fell down in the night and someone thought they heard a deep, deep moan, but all, but all were sure they had seen him fall backward in that eternal fall backwards that happens in slow motion. And someone said the man's body flailed and twitched after the car drove too fast and right at the man who didn't have time to run but looked up to see the face of a driver already afraid of what he'd done. There are days when I am not the mother. There are days when I am small, when I am the girl, when his hands are too large and his arms too strong. 
Days when my death comes too soon and then not soon enough. When he drinks too much and finds me in his bathroom, seeing myself in his mirror and he's angry. My face is too much in his house and he cannot stand it there and pushes me quick into the mirror and the mirror cracks and my face is cut. These are the days I am not in my body. And so I walk and walk away and down the street afloat above myself waiting for him to come. But first he must hit me. So it's my voice calling us back from the street, my screaming that draws us from the dark saying, look, look what you've done. Night again, I bathe him and he is crying into the bath. On this night, he has pushed his best friend through a storefront and has cut himself trying to save him, deciding after the glass shattered, he didn't mean it. It is like this for him the before and the after. The anger behind the headlights followed by the fear of the body fallen backwards. Collision of two moments, hit and run. He bleeds into the bath and I worry that I will need to take him to the doctors and they will see that he has taken drugs and has been drinking. I fear they'll send him away or keep him for themselves thinking I won't know how to heal him. I am good at giving the bath. I rub circles at the sides of his head. I know to scoop hands full of warm water over his shoulders so they run down his chest. When I do this, my mother appears in my head, angry and not allowing my brothers to bathe because they make a mess. She is sick of cleaning up. Instead, she drinks and sleeps on the couch with her own hair greasy and stuck to her head. My brothers would go to school stained, unwashed, and the others would hold their noses and laugh and point. So I would wait until my mother fell asleep, fell into the deep sleep she does not easily wake from. And I would gather my two brothers into the bathroom and tell them to take their clothes off. And I would fill the tub with water and the oldest one would refuse to take off his underwear because he didn't want me to see him. And I would say to get in anyway and I won't look at you. And this time he would do what I said. I know his sickness. I know that what is left looks like him, but is not him. When I bathe him, he stops my hand from scooping the water and pulls me to him. He sees that I have been crying too. He says that he did this and I say yes, but that moment is past and now we are in another. He is crying the tears that come after the screaming and the hitting, tears that ask, forgive me. I am closing my eyes and whispering, that I have a room where a bed waits for him, where the walls give way and the light is soft, cloudy white. I am circling him with my arms and he is crying into my belly. I am taking him, guiding him down the cold hallway into the warmth of the room where I cover him and keep watch, waiting for what is yet to come. Wowza. Yeah, because you, you, once you start down the corridor of that poem, you just keep going and going and going or sorry I should have said I mean there's a there's a weird thing where if poets write short prose you call it a prose poem and when fiction writers write short prose you call it flash fiction uh-huh. or um micro fiction yeah. but yeah this this I think this felt very poetic yeah, yeah. When, it, when those two things meet in the middle it's like a starburst right like it's got yeah. elements of both like oh yeah I mean she pays so much attention to language and rhythm and pacing and um, poetic gestures like oh oh his mouth 
right? Um, so, Alex, this is so unfair of me that you are the one who put the podcast potential label on this. So what if you, can you get us started? I know everybody's still absorbing and thinking uh, slushies. We really don't read the work in advance. Um, unless it's longer pieces of fiction, right? Then we come in ready to discuss. But uh, for some of us, this is a first read. So that's why we're so quiet and yeah. sober. I mean, what I, like we talk about, like I, I get drawn to poetic language in what is, I guess would be considered prose or that kind of, it breaks, I guess, I don't want to say breaks the form, but pushes against the, the a typical prose, I guess. So I guess that's what drew me to it. And I, I this very easily, like in a, in a lesser writer's hands, the, the, the short sentences would sound like Shatner and it sound like a very Oscar Beatty, like, but there's too, there's so much hidden control over the language where it's not obvious like that. Oh, like I'm doing all this work. It's so seamless. And then like the backstory is given, but it's like just enough. And then we, we understand where, why this person maybe relates to, to the other person in, in this piece. And then we move on and see how that informs our understanding of what's going on. It's not like, well, I was a young child. And then so mm -hmm. it's like, here's this moment that kind of encapsulates other relationships I have and then how it informs this relationship. And it's, we only, it's only 880 words and it tells us a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well said, Alex, right? I think there's, I, I, I wanna jump on the last thing you said. There is such a spaciousness in this piece, right? Like I, it was hypnotic to read it, right? So Maria is doing some amazing things like at the, sen the sentence and the sound level mm. and the, the total, like I, there's a total world that gets captured here and it's, it's dark, right? It's, you know, just to, you know, state the obvious there, like it, it feels like a strange complicity um, and confession quality uh, that comes through in, in, in this piece, this eternal fall backwards. There's um, a really terrific um, Andre Debuse, the elder story called A Father's Story that um, I love so much. I, I, it's really one of my favorite pieces. I often teach it and it's long, but um, I'm, not, I'm not really giving anything away because the premise is established really quickly that a daughter inadvertently is drunk driving and inadvertently hits a man oh. and, and runs to the father. And then the father's predicament is, what does he do? Does he out his own daughter for the hit and run? She hits the person and drives home, right? And uh, I don't want to reveal more than that. It's a really wonderful story. Um, so in that first paragraph, I thought it was only 
air quotes, <laughs> going to be about that, this particular night, right? And I was a little, because that story means so much to me and I reread it at least once a year, um, I thought you can't, you can't have that story. And, you know, all these other thoughts were, were coming from my perspective were that, but then just the, um, the barrage of horrifying events that um, this man has put the speaker through or she's been born witness to is, um, it's, it's almost too much, right? I feel, I just feel, I think barrage is a good word, right? The barrage of these terrible, terrible um, experiences that she still stands by him and comforts him. That's a, that is a hard thing to balance too, right? Like, like the, like the ghastliness of this, right? And it's, and it's yet compelling, but it doesn't feel prurient. Like it doesn't feel like weirdly pornographic in its description of this violence, right? Um, or like salacious, like, you mean? Like it's not, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't have that salacious quality. Um, and I say this like having just binged a Netflix show called The Defeated, right? Which is um, set in post-war Germany during its occupation. And um, it, it's got a whole bunch of like themes in the universe of this fiction. And one of them is, is like you're tracking um, extremely violent crimes, like extreme. So the first couple of episodes, it's really just it's too much you know what I mean like the violence is, is so overwhelming you kind of like turn away it's so, and it's hard to keep watching um but keep watching I did because I was really interested in how they were going to do the story arc in this right like the the violence is 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 like near catastrophic but also super weirdly quiet in its delivery right like there's something muted in um in this first person POV and the way the the speaker is is giving giving you access to all of these complexities. And I'm gonna pause right now, Larissa, because I think hopefully we have Jason back. Right? I'm back. Yeah. Great. Okay. Excellent. Can you yeah. catch me up quickly on what we've what we've covered before we <laughs> I don't think we really can do that. Okay. Then just think, just yeah, start yeah, talking I and I'll I'll catch up. I was going to acknowledge that to Slushy. So the entire time that Alex and I and now Marion were giving our opinions, Jason had technologically uh, been raptured and he wasn't among us. And now he's back. Um, but rather than us reiterate or try to synopsize mm -hmm. what we said, Jason, I think it would be even more fascinating if you just talked to us about thoughts you're having about the story. Um, what I really... I really like the story and I think that the way in which it kind of nests um, the various ways in which the speaker has been tending to drunks and tending to addicts and kind of dealing with the ways in which that um, reverberates outward across her life um, is really beautiful. Um, and so, and I, and I'm, I was really struck by what um, happens in the very, very first line with O, mm -hmm. O of his mouth. And there's, there's this way in which it just destabilizes the way that the language is working because it calls attention to the letter as a letter form, 
right? That usually we're thinking about languages as kind of conveying sounds to us. And then to kind of talk about the letter itself as a symbol of the body um, sort of creates this kind of different relationship to the language that I found both um, not disorienting, but reorienting. It was like, mm -hmm. okay, so this is gonna work a little differently. And so in, 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 in a piece as short as this to have a um, digression, to have a memory, to kind of go into a flashback and think about bathing the brothers, um, I thought was kind of set up by that, that we were kind of ready to sort of go in these other places because the language had told us really early on that something different was gonna be happening. And I, I'm also, I mean, there's, there's also a way that I found when I was reading it, that it sets me up to want to save this speaker, to caretake this speaker in the same way that the speaker is caretaking the people in the poem. Mm. And that there are these kind of nested forms of rescue. And that in a certain way, it seems like what I'm really fascinated by, um, particularly in kind of accounts of people in proximity to addiction um, and abuse is kind of why they stay, right? Like sort of what's that, like as, as an outsider, you're like, go, <laughs> don't stay here. Oh, right, right, right. Um, and yet like the minute as the reader, I want to rescue that um, speaker, that I feel the sense of obligation to someone who's suffering and wanting to make it better, that that's the exact same impulse that's being directed toward um, the character in the poem that I want to rescue her from. And so it, it does this kind of really beautiful work of making understandable precisely the thing that initially seems incomprehensible by placing you in that same position. And I think that that's a really kind of amazing move that happens really deftly in a piece that's very short. Short, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna repeat one word back to you that's so fascinating to me. You're, you're talking about these nested, um, moments that we get and when you were gone I used the word barrage mm. and they they have such different um connotations right they're such different words nest is nice <laughs> and right. barrage is violent right but I really get why you're using that word because this is so quiet and there's so much love here you know, and that the act of bathing somebody is, is yeah. you know, probably well, and, more intimate than sex, yeah. you know? What were you gonna say, Jason? I'm sorry. Well, that, um, that I, I, I think that also kind of places an emphasis on how the speaker is responding, that, that there's, there's this, the speaker's impulse to deescalate violence, to absorb violence, and then to kind of like move to the calm that the calm that will come is what the speaker kind of keeps pushing towards, even though surrounded by these people who keep lashing out, who can't do anything but lash out, and who are then sorry. And right. we're then like, oh, yes, right. that was, I, I shouldn't have done that, sorry. Oh, and the, the um, remorse is instantaneous, right? Yeah. It, he's still behind, oh, that line was so good. Where was that? Yeah. Um, oh, with about the friend and the storefront. Yeah, I was, I was going to point out that sense, I, I can read it because I read it one way initially and then I read it like another, like the way we're reading it now. Oh, great. I would love to hear it again. 
Okay. On this night, he has pushed his best friend through a storefront and has cut himself trying to save him, deciding after the glass is shattered, he didn't mean it. And yeah. I feel like the way I said after can be like, I could have said it differently. And I feel like that sentence would mean something slightly different because mm -hmm. the way I was originally reading it, I read it as there's some tension, like she's vocalizing some, like how she's a little um, tired of this. Like, it sounds like this is a common occurrence, just a different situation. But at the same time, and then I read it again. And it's like, oh, she's trying to ameliorate it. It's like, well, he didn't mean to. Mm -hmm. Like he, he figured out after the glass had shattered like that, like he was trying to save this person. So I, I feel like there's a little bit of tension in that that uh, scene there too, the way she, the speaker's describing it. And there, and there is this kind of constant acknowledgement of, you know, but first he must hit me, right? Like, mm -hmm there's there's that expectation inside of it and there's there's this kind of um I mean I thought it's really interesting that it often uh, the last paragraph I know his sickness I know that what is left looks like him but is not him that there's this kind of way in which um the speaker bifurcates the violent version from the sorry version in the mm -hmm. same way that the um beloved wants to right yeah. that the, the beloved is sort of like in this constant cycle of, of aggression and, and apology right and the speaker has kind of done that work for him in terms of kind of bifurcating the violent one to get to the real version that's the sorry version and of course his readers were like it's just him <laughs> like there's only one but um i but i i think it's it's so beautifully constructed in the way that the speaker kind of um understands this process is necessary and and it seems invested in keeping it going um uh, seems uh, invested in not leaving um i fear they'll send him away or keep him for themselves so that there's a there's a kind of holding on to that right. the speaker engages in that's part and parcel of this cycle uh exactly in that last paragraph and i say yes but that moment is past and now we are in another yeah, she, there's no indication that she wants it to end. That this, this is this is a life that she's accepted. Alex, well, let me let me push on it a little bit too, because it's sort of like it reads like um, a dramatic monologue in the sense that you're, we're getting access to uh, a character, right? Sort of like 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 think thinking through right this relationship and and then i i get the sense that as the reader we're being invited in to judge it mm -hmm. but and that is that is a really tricky position to be in in that you know the 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 speaker is talking about like the her complicity in a in a violent relationship right and so like is this somehow in like, I don't know, nor normalizing that behavior in such a way as, as to endorse it. I, that's a stretch, right? Total, total, that's a stretch. But, but there's something very like, like powerfully um, done here in, in the speaker's 
um, willingness to confess the, 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 these like the shadows, the complicities and the, and the endurance of this relationship, right? Like at to, to, as you guys have said, there's no sense that, that this person wants to break out of it, right? It really is just like the, the reader's invited into the, the world of these um, threats and shadows and I, I also had the sense that this that it's not, the speaker isn't writing. But sometimes, you know, when you're reading a novel, like if you're reading like Lolita, you know, like you, you're very aware that Humbert Humbert has composed this work for you. But there are other kind of more stream of consciousness, which I think this is, in which we're just kind of entering this yeah. person's stream of thought. We're just kind of entering the stream of consciousness. And um, I'm thinking about how, because over the years, my students have become kind of increasingly moral. Um, in their readings. And, you know, there's there's kind of an idea that representing is a kind of endorsing or that showing someone doing something is the same as saying that that's an okay thing to do. And um, in my own dissertation, which I haven't published on yet, but, um, but which, which does deal with, with representations of violence and abuse, I actually think it's a really ethical position to not try to fix it. Um, to represent something as it is um, and to kind of understand that experience of being inside of without sort of, you know, doing the, and, and then we saved everyone or, and then, you know, this is how you fix it. Or, and then um, that, that there's a kind of recovery culture which insists on a sort of version in which um, fiction, and, you know, there's something like, like the color purple, right? Like, like fiction is designed to guide us out of something bad. And I, and I think in a lot of ways, there's, for me, the ethical position is to stay with what it feels like to be in something horrible. And I think that fiction, and, you know, and if it were a memoir, I would feel yeah. quite differently, right? If it were a memoir and the ethical obligation of the author were to present a factual and emotionally honest account of their experience, I, I think I would feel differently. I think that because this is fiction, um, I'm, I, I think it's actually quite ethical to present um, a kind of windowless room, a kind of um, you know, closed box in which this continues because, because it makes the position understandable. And it, it, you know, it gets you into those kinds of you know, um, illness and its metaphors conundrums, where once you demonize something, then the people who are complicit with it are also demonized. And so if you declare your war on cancer, it quickly becomes a war on people with cancer. And so I, I think that kind of by not um, making a character who is in the process of departing, but kind of presenting someone who is, is deeply invested um, in remaining, you actually, um, have a very different kind of intimacy and you can kind of just stay with the character um, in a different way than if you needed to rescue the character, even though that, that's definitely an impulse that I, I know I brought to the piece as a reader. But I love that distinction you're making too between flash fiction and memoir, right? The fact yeah. that it's fiction, right? Is like gives it this territory um, for staying with this POV in a way that is I, and I and this 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 notion of the, the ethics of that of of that craft right that like the craft allows for um, an ethical position rather than a 
again, the sort of like endorsement, right? Like it's somehow tacitly normalizing endorsing this sort of like suffering, right? Um, fantastic. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So is it not too much? And we always have to, you know, I'm the one who always had to say, is there another side to this conversation? <laughs> um, it is so much. I used that word barrage earlier. Is it too much? Why is it not too much? And Do you think it's too much? No. I'm trying to be some kind of devil's advocate. Oh. Well, it, I mean, would, would that ever be a criticism? Could you see anybody saying... Oh, geez. Or you keep talking about wanting to get her out. Do you think anybody would be so upset by her actions that they wouldn't have that empathy that you're having for her and then just be like. I, I will I will say that I when I when I teach, I find that um, I am not in any way, shape or form a universal reader. And that my students will come to things with a very, very different perspective. And what I would predict with a piece like this is that, because um, and, and this is based on my experience of teaching um, a documentary about bullying, um, Cynthia Lowen's bully, um, that the students who were less caretaken. Um, had less had different forms of empathy that the, that the students who were less caretaken were had the sort of the position of like this person needs to like stop this or, or it's not going to stop and the students who were more caretaken were very angry about the failures of the institution that people who had had institutional support were furious that the institution had done nothing to rescue um, the person in question which i think would be my position mm -hmm. um, and the students who were less caretaken and kind of had more adversarial and frustrating relationships with the institution were much more upset with the boy who was being bullied. And were like, yeah, well, if he doesn't do something to stand up for himself, no one's going to, like, he needs to fix this. And, and initially it looked like less empathy to me. And I just think it was a different line of empathy. And so, yeah, I think that how you approach this is, is going to have a lot to do with what you bring to it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there, but, but also, I mean, the other question for that becomes, um, how upset is too upset? Um, I mean, if this is a piece that activates something in your past and as a reader, you escaped this situation and now you're being pulled back into it and being, you know, and looking at, um, a version of yourself right. and it's going to keep you up at night. Is that a bad outcome is that something fiction shouldn't try to do if it's something that you have no relationship to and you can kind of move on to the next thing or you can think huh like i i don't really understand this character but i'm going to put them in the back of my head and you know maybe right. later on this will this will kind of click this will chime or click with something else um but i don't know i mean like there's there's i i think a lot of these touch on on other questions about what it means to be a reader and how upsetting is too upsetting and um what kinds of trouble or what, what are you willing to put up with in order to be a reader? I mean, it's, it's sort of a terrible way to phrase it. I wish I could find a better way, but. Um, no, um, you're, and you're hitting like when you, when you were um, raptured, 
Marion yeah. said that none of these descriptions were pornographic or salacious. No. And that yeah. I think would be, th that I think in and of itself makes you feel um, like it's not too much, like she's not just, yeah. let me, let me salaciously show this description of a, you know, long suffering partner of a raging violent alcoholic. Right. I, I also think the fact that it's in words makes a huge difference that if this were a film and I were watching this person be hit, I were watching this person have her face put through the mirror. I were watching, mm -hmm. um, you know, all of this, this broken glass and blood and um, because I, I think I would feel differently. Um, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to, if you were watching the scene in which she's trying to bathe the older brothers or they, they, sorry, I'm not sure if they're old. When she's trying to bathe the brothers, um, in the body of the actor, you reproduce the shame of exposure that right. the brother is experiencing and wanting to keep on his underwear. Um, like, yeah. like if you if you do it in a different medium, it has a quite different valence. And sure. because it's coming as a kind of stream of consciousness, um, and because it's coming as a monologue, I, I think it has a different kind of power, but it also keeps you away from that kind of salaciousness or that kind of ogle and mm -hmm. sort of presents it as a sort of really yeah. human experience that you shouldn't look away from because, right. because either the instinct to blame or to be titillated or to um, kind of have a tabloid version. I, th I think this, because it's in language and because yeah. of the way that it's written doesn't do any of those things, which I, th which I think is what, what pull draws me to it. So Jason, I, I think that's, a, that's exactly right. And why, I, when I called it a dramatic monologue earlier, I was also thinking of um, theater for one, um, the, the experience of, which is now, had been an in-person one-to-one experience is now um, virtual, right? Um, so you sort of enter into the Zoom space and the actors performing and can see you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's a very intense sort of, um, experience that that calls exactly this you know reader writer exchange into focus because there is such a sense of intimacy and confession constructed in this 880 word piece and it's it's sort of like it's a it's the of, of air quotes here especially the victim's meditation right like this is the, the woman speaking from an outside perspective is a victim right of um of, of this relationship, but she's complicit in the relationship. And, and that's what reminds me a little bit of a book called The Five. I think it's called The Five by Hallie Rubenhold. And in its historical nonfiction, um, and she focuses on the women who were murdered by Jack the Ripper. She doesn't refer to them as like prostitutes, right? Or tarts. She does, you know, she, she contextualizes the sex work and she contextualizes marriage or, or lack of marriage for these women in this economic historical context that made them vulnerable to be preyed upon by by this criminal but those sort of ripperologists out there only tell the story that these are cores right? right um who are are violated and desecrated by and murdered by jack the ripper right so like what's it, for some reason it's like this piece this 880 word piece of fiction is like tapping the shoulder of these other two genres. Like it does feel theatrical and it does feel like it's a kind of um, like just a study of a point of view that 
that is often just called victim and 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 dealt with as someone who needs treatment, right? Or yeah. or, or taken care of, right? So the by the by not trying to rescue her, there's a kind of empathy that allows a full humanity, uh, yeah. which is often denied. Like there was a, there's a documentary called Very Young Girls about um, uh, sex workers, uh, prostitutes. And at the core of the film, it can't explain why the women are so eager in many cases to get back to the pimps who are abusing them. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's very strange, like watching this film, there's this, there's this total like, and, and, and as I was watching, I was like, what is missing to the documentary to make things make sense, right? Like, isn't the point of the documentary that you understand the subjects who are being presented through the lens? And there was just this, you know, this, this, this gap where it is in that gap. Like a piece like this makes the incomprehensible understandable. Yes. And I, well and I think that's a beautiful work of fiction. That's an ethical stance. I was also going to mention that I, w- I was many years ago, this, there, I was at a reading and someone read this very sentimental, sad poem about Alan Turing. And it just felt really easy to me. Like, I mean, now that everyone knows who Alan Turing is and everyone knows like what happened to him um, to kind of just sort of be like, it was sad, felt like I was like, that, that's, you know, like, ugh, that's, no, this isn't enough. And I, and I ended up in response to that, writing a poem about um, someone fantasizing about Alan Turing in a kind of S&M way and sort of turning <laughs> what had happened to him, which, which is of course like this terrible atrocity into a kind of sadomasochistic sexual fantasy. Because I just thought like, I mean, what does Alan Turing deserve? He deserves like, like let's remember him as hot. Like, you know, like if, if we want to sort of like do some reparative work around the way he was treated for his sexuality, let's find a way to celebrate that sexuality. I, Jason, I think you just landed on the title of the, of this episode. Alan <laughs> Turing was hot. <laughs> uh-huh. He was. I remember was totally him. Hot. We sure remember him as hot. <laughs> I love the phrase. Just don't leave that out. Yeah. It's it's like it's like the lip prints on um, Oscar Wilde's grave. Yeah, like the right thing to do is to kiss it. <laughs> what are we thinking? Well, I think I think we should vote because we're not really talking about the story anymore. I mean, we've kind of started talking about the ethics of, <laughs> yeah. of fiction we'll and memoir. The and, you know, we sort of we'll started with this question of like, you know, is this doing? Because we we were so sort of persuaded by the beauty of the craft mm-hmm. um, that we almost sort of like moved away from it into other questions that were sort of felt a little more pressing, but I, I feel like, you know, we should probably vote because we're, the story is so beautiful. We, it's, it's, it's an odd thing that happens. The story is so beautiful, you stop discussing it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, let's do it. Are we ready? One, two, three, vote. And there it is. Hey, you know. It's a star. <laughs> Thank you, Maria McLeod. Thank you so much. We love unanimous yeses, even even if, sorry, slushies, if there wasn't dramatic tension there for you, but <laughs> read the story and feel along with us. So I think we definitely rounded the corner over 45 minutes or so. So I guess we'll just wrap it up here. Anybody have anything to say? All right, well then, slushies, let us know how we're doing and keep reading. Thank you very much. Hey, Marie McLeod. Woo-hoo.